Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A farmer sows seed because he wants security. He wants to know that he will have enough money and food and storage to secure his family until the next season. This understanding of farming is anti-scriptural. In the Book of the Twelve, we are repeatedly warned that man's lust for security is the cause of human suffering. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus assigns new meaning to the act of sowing seed, where a human farmer sows for himself under the illusion of control, Jesus sows for others at his own peril, under the promise of hope against all hope, despite all the cruelty, suffering, and betrayal in the world, despite the Roman occupation, despite attempts by his own community to shut him up. Jesus does not lose hope because he places all his trust not in the work of his own hands, but in the will of his Father who said, All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will perform it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 155 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And he was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And that's all that Jesus has been doing up till now. Jesus has been showing what the kingdom of God is so far, and this has been the problem because people have been trying to prevent Jesus from spreading his seed. Jesus is manifesting the kingdom as he teaches the word. When they want to keep him back so that they can have their healings and such, he cannot manifest the kingdom. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. The sower has no power. The sower can't make a resolution except to obey the commandment to sow the seed. But that resolution to obey the commandment, that expression of trust and the commitment to follow through on that trust is not to the benefit of the sower. And even so, even if the sower is doing it because he wants to please his father, which is what Jesus is doing, he has no guarantee that he will please his father in the end because we don't know what the outcome will be. Jesus can't resolve to make plants grow. All he can do is spread the seed and then the rains will come and whatever fruit is born of those plants will be born of them. All he can resolve to do is spread the seed. So the how here is not just a scientific question. How does the seed grow? 
I mean, that's a question. No one knows how the seed, now you can explain how the seed grows because you can analyze it. But that's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse, of this expression, Jesus not knowing how, is that he's powerless. The farmer does not have control. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain and the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So the soil has its job, and then the reaper has his job. But in between sowing the seed and reaping the fruit, it's the seed doing the work in the soil. But fruit is then reaped later on. Now, I don't like the translation here. It says the soil produces. This is implying that the soil is doing something. The word in Greek, karpophoreo, means to bear fruit. Again, the job of the soil is to be fruitful and multiply. So I'm fine with the word produce because it does mean fruit in English, but you have to be careful in the way that you read it in English because it could also mean production as in the way human beings manufacture things, and that is not analogous to the idea of being fruit-bearing in the Gospel of Mark. Well, I think it's important that you bring up this difference in translation because karpos is fruit. So this is what he's re-emphasizing one more time. It's fruit. It's, it's fruit. It's about producing fruit. You sow seed so that fruit will come. This is the point. It's not you sow seed so you can pat yourself on your back and say, I'm such a great sower. The world does not need great sowers. The world needs fruit. What's amazing and powerful about verses 26 through verses 29 is that it presents to you the teacher-disciple relationship once again. The teacher-disciple relationship in Scripture is cast within the framework of hierarchy. It's cast within the framework of the father-son relationship, the parent-child relationship. But here in Mark, it's also cast in the relationship between the farmer and the soil. Jesus is the farmer, the teacher. The soil is the community, a community. But Jesus, as teacher, is as powerless as the soil. That is what is so radical about verses 26 to 29. Now, it's not radical in terms of how life works. I want to always remind our listeners that Scripture is very scientific and very scientifically correct in the way that it aligns itself with the mechanics of the created world. It's an empirical debar, it's not a philosophical debar. Having said that, it's still difficult, I think, for Christians to understand that the Son of God himself has no power in the teacher-student relationship. And that's why the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is such a serious risk. Because Jesus can't make you not reject the seed. So if we imagine the Holy Spirit as a wind, and the seed has to go as far as it can, because like we saw in the parable of the soil, you have to sow enough seed so eventually some will hit some good soil. But that doesn't mean you look around and you do an examination and find out, okay, is this the good soil? No, let me go and try this soil. Is this soil good? No. No, you don't know if it's good soil until you put the seed in it. So the only way to tell is by spreading seed, spreading seed, spreading seed, spreading seed, until you can see how much fruit is produced at the end. You can't know ahead of time if it's good or not. Oftentimes we hear about the already, not yet. There is no already because it's not yet. The seed is still germinating. There is fruit 
among some, there is not fruit among others, but it's not the end yet. And since it's not the end, we can't judge because it's not quite time to harvest. So for those who have not yet produced fruit, there's still hope that eventually they will produce fruit. But that doesn't mean Jesus is going to sit around and watch. He's going to keep sowing seed. And the Holy Spirit is so beautiful when we think of the Holy Spirit in Acts and how it moves the word from one place to another. But we think about the Holy Spirit as a wind with the sower in that it blows the seed as far as it can and as broadly as it can so that it can eventually find the soil in order to germinate. The only people who talk about the already not yet paradigm are people who are comfortable. That's the point Paul is making 1 Corinthians. You're living in this already not yet mentality because you have everything you want materially. But what about someone living in a, a war-torn country or a country ravaged by poverty or famine or pestilence? What about someone who is homeless? Do you think that this already not yet philosophy works for that person? What scripture is doing is sowing the hope of the kingdom in your mind so that you don't lose hope and you don't lose trust in the potential of the seed. But you'll never convince somebody whose stomach is empty that they're already in the kingdom. There's no way. It doesn't make sense. What you can show them is that despite their hunger, they could live, which is a different proposition. Yeah, so when the crop permits, he, interestingly, immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. But it is not time for the harvest yet. It is not yet time for harvest, so it is not already the time for harvest. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? So we've had one so far, which is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil... Though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And this is a reference to Ezekiel. This is the sprig that God plants on Zion that puts to shame all the mighty cedars of Lebanon. This is the point that because this person is in a war-torn country and they're starving and they're besieged by oppression and tyranny and violence. You can't lie to this person and say they're already in the kingdom because they're living in a world ruled by men, in other words, ruled by Satan. What you can do is propose to them that this tiny seed of hope, the seed of the gospel, doesn't look very impressive right now. But if you just plant it and take care of it, and give it water and make an effort to receive it and nurture it so that it can bear fruit it's possible that it will grow in such a way that the war will end and hunger will end and the next generation will not be in the same situation as you we preach as David says in the Psalter for the generation not yet born it's about like you said father the fruit you can't judge the plant by its seed because the seed has everything it needs in order to become the plant and to bear the fruit but if it lands on unproductive unhelpful soil nothing will come of it the only thing is the fruit 
You can't judge by the seed. You can't judge by the soil. You can't judge by the rain. The only way you can judge is by the fruit at the harvest. That's why harvest and judgment are often used at the same time, because that's the only way of determining, did the system work or not? You have to look at the mighty cedars of Lebanon arrayed around you, and you have to trust that this little branch, this daliot in Hebrew, can become something mightier and can bear a different kind of fruit one that in the parables of the kingdom drawn from Ezekiel, as Jesus says here, provides shade and comfort for all of the creatures that in the kingdom. The birds can come and rest there. The animals can rest under this tree. It provides shade. It provides life. It's like the arrogance of Americans. And they see beautiful forests and they say, oh, we don't want to have forest fires because it's going to wipe out the trees until they finally realize that in order for the seed to be planted in fertile soil, you have to have a fire. Human beings think that it's all about what they can see right now, and that's what's going to produce the fruit. No, you have to let things take its course and see what fruit is produced. Again, Mark does not let us forget about the fruit. So up to this point, it's been Jesus sowing, 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 sowing. And now Jesus is finally explaining, how can I explain it to you? What's a parable that you'll understand by? It's about the fruit. And if you are sitting in a war-torn country, or you are a wealthy Westerner trying to lecture someone sitting in a war-torn country, both of you have to remember that Jesus himself did not know what would happen when he sowed the seed. He trusted. You can't be the self-righteous Westerner who trusts in his ideology and thinks he has something to offer. And you can't be the war-torn person who's angry and in despair because you don't trust either. The question is trust. Do you trust what Jesus trusts in Mark that this little seed, this little seed can offer hope for all of creation? That's the question Mark is posing. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. Again, I'm going to say parenthetically, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So on the one hand, if you can't hear it because you're not attuned to it, you're in big trouble. On the other hand, Jesus is going to keep working until you can hear him. And this is one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to explain what these parables are saying. But don't listen to us. The only thing is for you, our listener, to understand the parable that Jesus is teaching. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He is teaching them how to speak Bible. You said something over the weekend, Richard, which is something that we've said in many and various ways on this podcast over and over again. The Bible reads itself metaphorically. And Jesus is saying the reason you are shut out of the kingdom is because you are not submitting to biblical metaphor. You are reading the Bible through your lens, not through the lens of the Bible. That is why in the new Antiochian school of exegesis, we don't talk about hermeneutics. We don't talk about methodology. We don't talk about approaches. Because there aren't hermeneutics, methodology, and approaches. There is the text. The text is its own hermeneutic. There is nothing outside the text. And for those of you who don't know what the word hermeneutic means, it refers to the practice of interpretation. The original Greek word erminevo means to interpret or to translate. So 
the question of hermeneutics in biblical studies is what tools do you bring? What is your methodology for translation? And we are saying on this podcast, do not translate. Do not interpret. Make the effort to see how the text reads itself. When Hosea talks about the people being taken into Assyria, he says you're going to go into Egypt. Now, geographically, they're not going into Egypt. They're going to Assyria. But Egypt stands for slavery. It's not just a geography. So we have to understand that the Bible will take actual geographies, but use them in a metaphorical way so that it stands for slavery. So when he says you're going to Egypt, it's not saying you're going to Egypt. It means you're going into slavery. And it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's in poetry. That's how poetry works. It saddens me how little poetry students in high school and middle school have time to read because it's essential for understanding how scripture works. I've known Bible fundamentalists who homeschool their children, but don't teach them poetry because it's not useful. I don't understand. How does that work? It's a shame. Here's how scripture works. Here's how literature works, but scripture in a very unique way. You have an agrarian society in late antiquity. You could be sowing seed because you're greedy and you want to fill your barns, which Jesus ridicules elsewhere in the New Testament. You could be sowing seed because you are a slave under your local government. Whatever you're doing, someone else controls the meaning of what you're doing, whether it's the oppressive ruler or it's your oppressive ego-seeking wealth. Maybe you're growing up in a household where everyone's obsessed with farming and wealth and security. There's a million scenarios we could dream up. But then, someone in that household, here's the Gospel of Mark, here's the parable of the sower, and now suddenly, while someone is telling him you need to sow seeds because you need to be wealthy, and someone else is saying you need to sow seeds because you don't want to face Caesar's wrath when you can't pay your taxes, Now suddenly, when he sees the act of seeds being sown, and when he himself goes out to sow seeds, he is thinking about the gospel, and that is how you emasculate false teaching. That is how you emasculate tyranny. That's how metaphor works. That's why tyrannical governments are more afraid of words than they are of tanks and guns and stones. So the power of scripture is in its metaphor and the way that it changes the way you see everything. This is what Jesus is doing. And the power of the Bible is that it doesn't do what Hellenic philosophy does. It doesn't say you can change reality. Because we all know this is not true. Reality is what reality is. You cannot make something change by what you think about it. This is a fantasy in science fiction. What scripture does is it looks at the way things work, which is indisputable, irrefutable. There are mechanics that govern the physical world and it assigns meaning to those mechanics. That's power. That's the ability to affect change. Over the weekend, I was thinking about my own life and in a moment of darkness, I Googled tortured academic. (laughs) And then I was shamed by Google itself because it gave me articles about academics in Syria who were tortured before they were able to leave the country. Exactly. This demonstrates exactly what you're saying, Father, which is these people who know nothing but words and ideas are a very terrible threat. Those who understand the words 
of academia are a threat, how much more so those who understand the words of scripture, which undermine all human power. And so this is why it's essential to spend your mental energy to understand the poetry, to understand the metaphor, to understand the language of scripture, because it bears power that can produce fruit that to us is unimaginable. Now imagine this. You hear the gospel in which a tortured and murdered Messiah is the anointed one of God, and you understand that he is holy. Now, having heard that story, and you look at a truly tortured academic, not an affluent Westerner who has psychological problems, but somebody who's actually being tortured, and suddenly, because of scripture, you see God, you see that this person is holy, and instead of joining in and ganging up on them, which is the human impulse to join in, you realize, no, this person is a child of God. We need to stop this. This is not correct. That's how scripture works. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. I want to encourage all of our listeners to join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your questions, your thoughts. What New Year's resolution did we ruin for you today? Take care, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.